This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners we are so excited to have a special episode to share with you this week we're doing a highlight reel of our top 10 episodes since we launched this podcast and there's an important reason why yeah eric that's right we're at this milestone moment where we're celebrating having released 100 episodes of the race to value and we think it's time to celebrate being the nation's leading podcast on value-based care transformation in the country And I remember when we started this, when you came on as the executive director for the ACLC and you were so excited to launch this podcast, this is kind of like a dream come true for you. And I'm just so pleased with the success that we've had, what we've been able to achieve. I mean, we've been uniquely privileged to meet with and interview the most amazing leaders in healthcare. And these are professionals who are dedicating their lives to winning this race to value and who are sharing great lessons with an industry that is hungry to learn. And Daniel, to make it even better, our 100th episode aligns with an important milestone for the ACLC. The Accountable Care Learning Collaborative was founded seven years ago by former HHS Secretary Michael Levitt and former CMS Administrator Mark McClellan. And we've recently rebranded to signify a new era of advancement and value-based transformation through workforce development. And this rebranding is going to better reflect our mission to advance health value, not only through collaboration, but through education as well. So we're launching the Institute for Advancing Health Value. And you can find this now online at advancinghealthvalue.org. And to celebrate this wonderful moment, we're gonna be hosting a, a launch event on May 5th. The Advancing Health Value Virtual Summit on May 5th will be where we share in-depth, all of what it means to have an institute that focuses on delivering solutions for upskilling and reskilling the workforce to deliver equitable and high-value care. And I'll give you a sneak peek of the event. I mean, we have Levitt, McClellan, a panel of experts, and we have the one and only Dr. Zubin Damania, otherwise known as Z-Dog MD. So definitely plan on attending that. Spread the word. Visit our website. Check it out. And we're offering complimentary registration to all those that attend. So there's definitely no reason to miss out on all the fun. So Daniel, why don't we get this highlight reel moving? Uh, Would you like to go ahead and kick us off? Yeah, thanks, Eric. I'm really excited to do this. Coming in at number 10, we've got Ian Giuliano, founder and CEO of Trella Health. 
Trello Health is about creating optimal networks that yield superior outcomes and efficiencies across the post-acute care continuum. And we know that the post-acute care continuum partnerships and value-based care is so important. He's got a unique perspective that kind of challenges what's the commonly held belief about avoiding sniffs and in post-acute care. So let's turn it over to Ian Giuliano. I feel that as a nation, we have been kind of overly myopically focused on the cost of a post-acute setting versus the impact and the cost trajectory of the patient. And so if I give you a perfect example, we, we spoke at the Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, he had a task force on healthcare. And we gave an example of two skilled nursing facilities down the street a and B, they're almost across the street from each other or five minutes from the Capitol. They both received patients from Brady, a safety net hospital. And if you isolated their most severe fee-for-service patients, highest acuity of which they had about 50 each, and you risk adjusted the cost from the day they entered the SNF for one year out, every cost they had, you risk adjusted using the HCC model, which as your listeners should know is how it's generally the standard because that's how CMS determines the advantage capitation rates. And you took A and you said that A averaged about $26,000 less in total cost of care than B risk adjusted. So if you were just to narrow that gap with that 50 patients, you could be looking at over a million dollars annually in savings and much better outcomes. Now, what A did when you look at the data was A consumed slightly more SNF than B with these patients. But what they also did is they consumed almost five times as much home health as B, where on the other side, B consumed over twice as much inpatient and then the explosion of professional claims that goes with it. So what I would tell anyone that's, that's bearing the risk is their knee-jerk reaction could be, oh, A is spending a lot more on post-acute, so I should cut them out. But what you really want to look at is that A was developing much better care plans and care path strategies, and they were giving those very severe patients a softer landing and a longer landing, and it was really paying off in the long run. Now, Eric, before we jump to, to the next episode and in our list, I want to point out to our listeners some of the other great insights we've had from guests that are focused in the post-acute care space. Like I said, these partnerships are so important, so please make sure you listen to other episodes that feature Dr. Stephen Buchanan at Iris Healthcare, uh, Andrew Croshaw at Levitt Partners, and Dr. Tim Erick at Crossroads Hospice and Palliative Care. Well, our next episode had a pair of guests that really embody what we're trying to do with the Institute for Advancing Health Value, and that's workforce upskilling and reskilling. And, you know, as an industry, we're at this inflection point in value-based care where we do need the staff with the skills and the mindsets of value and equity to drive transformation. So on our number nine episode, we had Dr. Janelle Sokolowicz of Western Governors University and Dr. Susan Hassmiller of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And they spoke about the recent Future of Nursing Report 2020 to 2030, charting a path to achieve health equity. And this was a study that was funded by the National Academy of Medicine and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So let's go ahead and hear briefly from Dr. Sokolowicz and Dr. Hatzmiller. We really look at the whole person by sheer nature and say, what is it that you have? What is it that you bring? How can I evaluate any course that you've ever taken? 
to give you credit for that and credit for that knowledge that you have and what are those experiences that you have. You talk about social determinants of health and we know health equity is our end goal, but in order to even achieve that, we have to create these pathways to education. And that's something I think we've also done really well at WGU because as a person that comes from an underrepresented minority population, oftentimes there's an assumption that we're everyone's taught the same about continuing their education and leaving high school and college is the next step. And that's not always taught in underrepresented minority populations because it is this overarching idea of how you have to financially support all of family members and, and extended family members. And so there's another notion that we need to create those pathways to education. And that can be done through credentials, certification, very small bits and pieces of education that can be accomplished while maintaining family responsibilities. Payment reform will require policy changes on the part of the health systems, insurers, and federal and state governments. This goes way beyond nurses. I'd like to say that nurses should be involved in some of this decision-making, involved with accountable care organizations on boards, but it really is up to the systems that pay care to make this happen. We also need strong multi-sector partnerships with health systems, insurers, businesses, and the state and federal government. They'll all be key to working within the current payment system and reforming it long-term so that nurses' contributions to care are valued. Nurses will never be able to unleash their full potential until their care is more valued and paid for. I agree. I think it's so funny to think about this huge gap between medical professionals as physicians become physicians and nurses. You know, you think about uh, the entire lottery and how physicians get chosen to go to the different health systems. And you think about the payback that the health systems get for employing these physicians, right? So they, they take the student, the medical student, and they, okay, yes, they're going to be here. They match up with this specific area that we need. We need cardiothoracic. And so we match them. We need them. We get some federal funds and reimbursement for having that student here who now is going to be a physician here. Why don't we think of our nurses that way? Why are we not seen as that valuable to a healthcare organization and really worth, right, federal funds that come back to an organization that employ these nurses. Well, I really love that episode. Um, Value-based care is so much more than leaders signing contracts. We really need clinician buy-in and nurses are a critical piece of that. So I want to call out two more points that they made in that episode. One was that our goal as educators is to empower students to have cultural currency in their communication so that they can provide competent care that's enhanced with humility. And they also made the point that if we're to overcome institutional barriers and allow nurses to practice at the top of their education, more value-based care will need to be at hand for us. So If you want to learn more about workforce and value-based care, definitely check out the Institute for Advancing Health Value, but also make sure you listen to some of our other podcasts with Christina Severin from the Community Care Cooperative, 
Cheryl Lulius from the Medical Home Network, and Lisa Trumbull from Sony Health, S-O-N-E, which is the Southern New England Health Organization, and also the episode that we have with Dr. Gordon Chen from ChinMed. Coming in at number eight is Dr. Zev Neuwirth, Chief Clinical Executive of Atrium Healthcare and the author of Reframing Healthcare, a Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change. Dr. Neuwirth's message was really a powerful one, and it's so difficult to narrow down to one excerpt to share with you. He really challenges leaders, though, in, in the industry and says a couple of main points that, that I want to mention before we hear from him. He asks the question, are we collectively ready to have the courage to change a system in fundamental ways? The answer is either yes or no. There is no in-between. And then he says a statement that just stuck with me. He says, I'm going to go down fighting against a system that strips the humanity out of every single person who tries to do the best they can to help their fellow man. Let's hear a clip now from Dr. Zev Neuwirth. There's a root, root cause. That's it. And again, this is not me saying this. This is literally every expert I have talked to for the last four or five years and interviewed saying the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just mind boggling to me that we, we continue to drag our feet in this shift from fee for service to value-based payment. And again, I, I get the arguments, believe me, there have been many systems that have tried to do this ahead of the game and they've just gotten way over their skis and they failed. And that's why this is a, a systemic thing that requires different form of leadership. And it's going to require courage that I'm just looking for, you know, I see it around here, but I'm looking for more of that collective courage. I wonder why don't CEOs of hospital systems get together and collectively say, we are going to make this big change? Why don't they link arms with the CEOs of payers? You know, and again, I know that that's going to sound grossly naive to some people listening to this because a lot of people make a lot of money in the current system and there's a lot to be lost from a lot of stakeholders. I get that. I'm not naive to, to some of the monetary influence on all sides, but it's still a question. I'm just asking the question. If we know we need to change and if we know that this is you know, destroying, I mean, people talk about burnout. Change the payment model and we will make a big, big dent in terms of burnout. We will put meaning back into medicine. We will allow physicians to do. And the doctors I talk to and the nurses I talk to and the PAs I talk to, they all want this. They want to practice medicine in a humanistic way. And I think that the a payment model more than any other change will enable that. You know, Dr. Neuwirth is one of so many big thinkers that we've had on our show, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out to you others like the Honorable David Shulkin, Dr. Robert Pearl, and Dr. Elizabeth Ticeberg. Make sure you check out those episodes as well. Coming in at number seven, we had Dr. Gorov Dial, president and COO of Everside Health, who, if you recall, in 2019, he was a contender to replace Adam Bowler as the CMMI director. He's been working at Everside on direct primary care to employers as a way to tackle health costs. He starts by saying in his episode that we've seen year over year that value-based care is bipartisan and there's a lot of passion at the federal level to push ideas that can improve care for the U.S. population, and he reiterates that throughout the uh, interview, but he also talks about that we need clinical leadership and influence to make that happen, and he aligned with our thinking that primary care is the best solution for healthcare reform, but let's listen to him directly. Here's an excerpt from our conversation on a topic that he's passionate about, and that is where he sees employers playing a role in ushering in health value 
so that the average family won't need to continue spending $20,000 or up to 50% or more of their income on healthcare each year in the midst of staggering inflation. So from the employer perspective, it's a huge burden versus, you know, in, in higher income industries, that 20,000 may end up becoming 10% of the total cost of that employee. So I think the burning platform may have been less so there had it been a bit more cost-sensitive group of companies coming together or price-sensitive uh, group of companies coming together. That being said, I am very optimistic about the future. My hope is that where we're going to see the push is from the employers themselves. Because at some point, I, and I use this maybe crude analogy that, you know, everybody complains about their cable bill. And I think that that's just a, a chronic complaint. People have, oh, it's cable's too expensive. And, but once you had options that were cheaper to get, and, but people weren't disconnecting cable until uh, new products came out like Netflix, which were much cheaper, much more user-friendly, and we're perceived to have much more value. I think what's happening in the healthcare delivery system is a similar model where companies like ours were somewhat smaller and maybe off the radar, virtual solutions, same thing. Now I think an employer has the opportunity to say, look, I am literally wasting dollars on healthcare that I could be paying my employees and I'm not getting good outcomes. So what we're seeing is large employers now getting more proactive around total cost of care management. And if you like what you heard from Dr. Gorov Dial, you'll definitely want to check out other episodes of The Race to Value. We had a great interview with Dr. Tom Davis, who's a consultant and an expert in Medicare Advantage, Farzad Mostashari, president and CEO of Alidaid, and Harris Rosen, the founder and COO of Rosen Hotels and the driving force behind Rosencare, which is an employer-backed solution that's transformed healthcare outcomes in the, the greater Florida community. I'm thrilled now to share with you some insights from Michael Radu, CEO, and Dr. Gregory Foti, Chief Medical and Transformation Officer of Absolute Care. These guys join us at number six. Absolute Care is a company that sees only the sickest of the sick, and they're getting positive results with comprehensive multidisciplinary care that focuses on all aspects of a patient's life and issues. And, and these gentlemen truly understand the challenges that lead to inequities and the efforts required to achieve health equity. Let's hear from them now. Cultural competency is core to what we do. So when it comes to transgender, when it comes for, to a Hispanic population, we'll, we'll have folks from, from all over the world who really end up in our offices. And, and, and really, so providers, at the end of the day, most of them went into healthcare to help people. Providers were also trained in a fee-for-service model and didn't get a lot of cultural competency in medical school, in their training, in residency. So as we interview, as we onboard, as we train, it's a critical aspect in the curriculum on how we train. And one of the things that we talk about a lot in our office, and it's, it's a motto that we have, is we break the status quo and we're rebels with a cause. And the rebel with a cause could be in so many aspects, but we're rebels with a cause to make sure that 
someone who is transgender, there's many offices around town that don't train in cultural competency, that that can't take care of them, that aren't able to build trust, that aren't able to build a safe place. And again, that goes hand in hand with really breaking the status quo. And again, it goes back to the core model is that if you're not able to build trust with this population, if you're not able to give the respect that they should have always had from day one, you're not going to drive outcomes. They're going to leave. They're going to go find somewhere else or they're just going to see you as another doctor. As you heard, health equity is so important to these guys. And it's also been a major focus of conversation on our podcast. You know, it's a passion and driver for so many of our guests and the work that they're doing. You think about Dr. Lerla Joseph at CV Chip ACO, the largest African-American ACO in the country. David Smith, consultant and owner of Third Horizon Strategies. Dr. Jesse James from Chess, Akil McClay with Bon Secures Mercy Health, and, and John Bluford from the Bluford Healthcare Leadership Institute. I mean, so many amazing conversations and insights into health equity. Coming in at number five, we have the legendary Dr. Dean Ornish, author of Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Change Can Reverse Most Chronic Conditions. And he's an expert on lifestyle medicine. I mean, I can't believe we had a guest that's formerly been interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. I mean, this was one of our more powerful episodes. And Dr. Ornish really talked about how lifestyle medicine can be the solution for addressing the healthcare spending on chronic disease that is upwards of 90% of the $4 trillion that we currently spend. And he's found a proven solution for implementing simple lifestyle changes, eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. And he's created a program and that for cardiac rehab that's been shown to prevent and reverse chronic disease that's actually reimbursed by the Medicare program. So let's definitely hear from him and what he has to say on lifestyle medicine and how it's going to drive the future of value. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more can reverse, not only help prevent, but actually reverse the progression of so many of the most common and costly uh, chronic diseases. And the reason is, is that they're not really so different from each other. You know, I was trained like all doctors to view heart disease and diabetes and type two diabetes and prostate cancer and uh, Alzheimer's and so on as being high blood pressure, high cholesterol, et cetera, as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses and different treatments. But I've come to really see them as really, they have more in common than they have different, really the same, in many ways, the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome and telomeres and gene expression and angiogenesis and immune function and overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and so on. And each one of these biological mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And so it radically simplifies the recommendations that we give people. Um, it also helps explain why you often find what are called comorbidities. You, you alluded to this earlier, that the same patient might have heart disease, type 2 diabetes, they'll be overweight, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, et cetera, because they really are just the same disease manifesting in these different forms or entire countries like China 50 years ago had very low rates of all these chronic diseases until they started to eat like us and live like us and all too often die like us, you know, kind of a grand global study here in a, in a negative way. And what I keep being impressed by is how our bodies often have a remarkable capacity to begin healing, how dynamic these biological mechanisms are. You can get better quickly, you can get worse quickly. 
I mean, we found in our earlier heart disease studies that just three or four weeks, we were able to show improvements in, in blood flow to the heart and the ability of the heart to pump blood. Most people who had severe angina or chest pain became essentially pain-free in just three or four weeks, over 90%. And for someone who can't walk across the street without getting chest pain or play with their kids or make love with their spouse or go back to work without getting chest pain, within a few weeks, they're pain-free. It reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of something bad happening, like a heart attack or stroke, which are really not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which really are. Well, I have to admit, this was a fairly unique episode. So many of our episodes talk about infrastructure for value, population health, risk adjustment, technology. I mean, talking about lifestyle medicine, that was it was just so unique. And I, I was really excited to have uh, this important conversation. We've also had other important conversations on our podcast that have maybe been outside of what we typically think of. We had a an episode on gender affirming care with Dallas Dukar. We had an episode on pediatric value-based care with Dr. Cheryl Morelli and Ginger Hines of Seattle Children's Network. We had this discussion on cost transparency with Dr. Keith Smith and Sean Kelly, who are two leaders really driving this movement. And we had Dr. Pat of Texas Oncology, a whole entire episode of value-based care oncology. And believe it or not, I connected with a friend of mine, Dr. Angelo DeLulo, who uh, Z-Dog and MD and I attended a six-day meditation retreat. So we did this entire episode on mindfulness and how that can really create resilience in the new healthcare economy. All right, listeners, coming in at fourth place, we're getting close to the top, is an episode that was very technical and focused on comparing the MSSP program to the GPDC model. Since that time, we know the GPDC model has been replaced by ACL Reach. And so we invited this guest back for a follow-up episode just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm confident that that newer episode with those updates will also be one of our top. This is information that you will want to know, and it will help you decide which model will you pursue. Let's hear now from Rick Goddard and Joe Satorius from Lumeris as they discuss one of my favorite parts about the new ACL Reach model. The upside only opportunity didn't have the teeth or the program offered effective levers for us to succeed in managing the total cost of care. So what it came down to was managing to compliance, beneficiary complaints towards the data opt-out, delayed CCLF data is incongruent with the trend reports. I, I remember, you know, we were getting like data six months late. And so anybody that's managed HMOs or managed care contracts with claims connected to them. It's like when you're getting it a few days later, they're trying to make interventions versus six months later and seeing someone fully develop a chronic issue since that time, it's a big deal. It's different. And you can't make those interventions associated. And then in program requirements, then getting a black box financial reconciliation on how we earn shared savings, you know, or not. Back then, those that took downside risk at that time, God bless them. But for me personally, I didn't see the juice worth the squeeze with the care delivery controls at that time. Also with the ruling on not being able to go back in risk with your entity if you went to a higher risk track, it didn't allow for much strategic thinking on how much your risk organization is willing to take with a relatively uncontrolled population. And thought many times we're fighting against moving up in the track because we're still doing quite well in track one up. 
By the way, make sure you check out our intelligence brief on the ACO reach model as well. We go into a lot of depth with these guys as far as the specific details. And if you want more episodes that are about policy like this one, we've had interviews with Jeff Miklos from the Healthcare Transformation Task Force. He continues the conversation on the ACO reach model. We've also got awesome conversations on policy with leaders like former Secretary Levitt, Dr. Mark McClellan, who was Levitt's CMS administrator, Mickey Tripathi of the ONC, and of course, CMMI Director Elizabeth Fowler. Well, we're in the top three. So in third place for most downloads of the Race to Value is the very well-known health system Geisinger. And we were privileged to speak with their president and CEO, Dr. Jaywan Rue. And while we spoke with him about a number of common topics like how value-based care allows us to innovate around models and marrying payment and healthcare delivery, we talked about how primary care is really the backbone of the delivery system. But it, to me, the comments that he had around food-based interventions and lifestyle medicine and how that can impact managing patients with chronic disease and serving underserved communities, I wanted to play a brief clip of him speaking about this initiative. I think as we see more efforts to make that pivot, I think we're going to see this whole area and the work around social determinants really accelerate and snowball. And I hope to see that, and I believe we will see that, and I think we're starting to see that already. So all of that is very, very encouraging. I think for us, we've had probably the greatest experience at depth with food. And we launched, and I, I think I've mentioned it earlier, a program called the Fresh Food Pharmacy basically takes diabetics who are poorly controlled, their sugars are poorly controlled, I should say. And these are folks who identify as being quote unquote food insecure and enrolls them in a program that provides essentially a food kitchen. So access to lean meats, fresh produce, they come in and pick up groceries essentially a couple times a week, but also as a part of that, they're also getting food coaching, whether it's dietitian support, cooking lessons, even in some cases, just really learning more about food and the importance of food on their disease, but also on their lifestyles overall. When we pair those two aspects, the food program and the coaching program, we've seen tremendous results. On average, we see 40% or so reduction in their hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of how much sugar has been in their bodies. That equates to something on the order of two to three points of a reduction on the hemoglobin A1C. If you want to tune in for more big thought leaders like Dr. Rue, definitely check out some other episodes we've had in the past. We had Dr. Clive Fields, a founder and CMO at Village MD. We've had Jen Moore of Maine Health ACO, Dr. Stephen Clasco, former president and CEO of Jefferson Health, Dr. Tim Peterson of POM ACO, Dr. Paul Grundy, the godfather of the patient-centered medical home and CMO at Innovacer. Uh, we've had Dr. Mark Gwynn of UNC Health Alliance and Dr. David Carmouche, formerly with Oshner Health. It really comes as no surprise that during these past two years, of intense disruption from the COVID-19 pandemic, that we have an episode that focuses solely on COVID-19. We were so lucky to have our special guest, Dr. Rodney Rohde, a virologist and clinical laboratory specialist with 30 years of public health experience. 
he talked about how viruses, especially RNA viruses, are the most diabolical microbes on the planet. And in this important conversation, we talked about the, the COVID-19 pandemic and its implications on public health. I mean, we discussed the three-year cycle for unchecked pandemics, developing herd immunity, the potential for an endemic transition, the significance of the landmark scientific achievement of developing an MRA vaccine technology for the first time in history, and about the importance of laboratory medicine in really improving value-based care and health equity. And, and let's listen to a clip from him now that, that talks about the future of public health and value-based care. These are things that keep us up at night when everybody else isn't uh, worried after this particular pandemic winds down. There are other things to be concerned about. And with that type of technology and what I will continue to to put a light on, and that is for ongoing support for public health funding and professional development for future professions, including medical laboratory scientists and public health professionals and physicians and all the others. Remember, it takes years to create these types of professions that are capable and ready to go. And public health funding has fell off in the last 20 years, and many of us have been begging for it. Uh, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it, it's just part of it. It's important because we need to look at public health. And I'm not the only person that says this as part of our Department of Defense. It is absolutely imperative that we fund public health uh, in a way that we can prepare for these types of pandemics. These agents have killed more people than all the wars put together in the past 50 years or so, if not 100 years. And finally, the moment you've been waiting for, number one on our list of the most downloaded episodes of Race to Value, we had the interview with Dr. Griffin Myers of Oak Street Health. Dr. Myers is the CMO and co-founder of Oak Street, and we know that Oak Street went public recently, and it looks like everyone wants to know what they're up to. And in this interview, Dr. Myers talked about value-based care as a technology in and of itself, superior technology compared to fee-for-service. And he wanted us to understand how we can use value to incubate and foster relationships to drive outcomes. And it's this trust in this relationship component that we really wanted to highlight here in this selected clip. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Myers as he talks about this important relationship. We always knew in the healthcare system what was most important. We've always known. It is a relationship between the patient and that person's provider. And when you have that trust, then you can engage in behavior change. If you think about it, we spend well under 1% of our life in front of our primary care doc or our doctors in general, but we're expected to change physiology for the entire 100% that we're alive. And that's really what medicines are good for, is we're hoping people eat pills so that we can change their physiology when they're not in front of us. The only way to do that is relationships. And, you know, I, I made a previous remark about meaning. It always reminds me, uh, I don't know if you've ever read this, the Viktor Frankl book, A Man's Search for Meaning, but, you know, we shouldn't be tricked into this idea that life is about maximizing pleasure. It, it's about maximizing meaning. And these relationships are deeply meaningful. It's what patients want. It's what doctors and nurse practitioners and primary care providers want. And, and really those relationships are built on trust. That connection comes on trust and trust is what allows us 
to educate and engage patients to create behavior change, which leads to better outcomes. So you, you made a quick little remark in there about social determinants of health. This trust is, you know, I and we believe really the core input to us being able to help patients navigate adverse social determinants. And here's one more clip from Griffin as he's talking about his optimism for the future of value-based care. I'm a reckless optimist. I believe that we have the ability to, to manifest the changes we want to see. And I think that the majority, you know, despite the way that it's positioned for us in whatever media we consume, that we as a country and we as people want a, a higher quality, safer, more equitable, more affordable healthcare system. And it's out there for us. And I think we have made really, really, really substantial progress over the last 15 years on this. People ask me a lot, like, how far into the journey are we? And, you know, and they often put it in a sports analogy. They say, what inning are we in? And everybody's expecting me to say first or second. I think it's like the seventh. And I think that's probably really good news if you're if you're where we are at Oak Street. I think it's really bad news uh, if you're still waiting for the game to get going. We know how these things are going to play out now. We know how they're going to work. And we know what to do to deliver this model. And our job at Oak Street is to go scale it. So I'm optimistic because we've got a model that works. The, the really thoughtful and enlightened career public service at CMS who are building these programs for us in direct contracting and other things, they've got a model that, that aligns with that. And the best thing I can say is, is like, let's take a deep breath, remember who we are, what we want to do, and let's go attack this problem. Because once you begin to see what the results can be as, as we get to do at Oak Street, it, it's infectious in a good way. And I'm optimistic that we're going to get to serve a whole lot more people in a model that fits what they need way better. That's the top 10 episodes of our first 100 out of the gate. We look forward to doing another 100. Race to value. We're continuing uh, our commitment to putting out the best content, the best conversations with the biggest thought leaders possible in this race to make value work in our country. And Daniel and I are leading the Institute for Advancing Health Value. So definitely register for our upcoming event. Check it out online, advancinghealthvalue.org. This transition to value-based care is an economic and a moral imperative. We need to make this work for the future of our country. It's a great honor, Daniel, being in a position to host this podcast with you. And for our listeners out there, we appreciate you uh, tuning in every week and, and believing in this important cause. And if you like the podcast, we've never asked this before, but we'd love for you to to put some comments on Apple Podcasts and, you know, give us some ratings, uh, tell people about us, and and definitely feel free to share uh, some important insights that you learned on uh, social media as well as our virtual community that we have within the Institute. So we definitely, um, again, want to thank you, and uh, we will see you next week as we continue on with our uh, next conversation in this race to value. 